morning, everyone. How you guys doing? It's my first time being able to preach in this beautiful church, so I'm really honored and privileged to be with you guys. Um, we will be at the end of service joining with uh, all kinds of other churches across the nation and doing a, um, a one-church liturgy where we are uh, remembering um, our brothers and sisters who were tragically murdered in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And that will be at the end of the service today or the end of uh, the sermon, end of the call to respond. But this morning what I'd like to do is if you could, uh, if you could turn your Bibles to this very small tucked away book in the Old Testament called Micah. Micah. And once you were there, Micah 6, would you look up with me? Look up. When we were first touring this building um, and, and entering into talks about being, uh, this being our summer home, we stood where many of you guys are sitting right now. And we stood and we looked up. And what I love about this building is that this building was built for worship. It was created for worship. Um, it draws your eye upward. I don't think there's a single person who walked in this building and didn't do this. Like it draws your eye up. And sacred, good sacred architecture is supposed to do that. It's supposed to, when you walk into a building, draw your eye heavenward. It's supposed to draw your eye up. So you look, you feel um, a little perspective. Like, oh, I'm actually kind of small. And God is really big. And this is just a building. It's also to draw your, draw your eye towards one another. That's what's different about this room. You're like, what's so different about this room? Well, you can see people. That's what's different. Like, it's just not all stage forward. It's like you guys around the sides are like facing each other. You guys see each other's faces. I don't typically get to see faces when I preach. I just see like, um, like a, a mat, like not, not, fa not faces. I see, I don't know what I see, but I don't see faces. Um, the stage is kind of disconnected at Everett and it's, it's built for uh, performances. This is built for worship. So if you are feeling a little bit more vulnerable in this space, you're like, there's something about worship I feel more maybe exposed. Um, is it because it's light in there? No, because everyone can see your face. And they can see when you're crying. And they can see when you're sleeping. And they can see when you're on your phone. It's great. It's accountability. This is what, this is what buildings are like this were created to do. And as we were here, our eye was draw, drawn up. And we're looking at the beautiful ceiling. And then um, we, w when we were touring this building, one of the staff members was standing right here, and I was looking up, and she said to all of us, we sit under this verse as a congregation. I don't know if you've noticed it. It's Micah 6.8. starts right here, right behind me. We sit under this verse as a congregation. And my first thought was, we will too this summer. So what I would like to do this morning is teach on this verse that we will be sitting under this summer. So I'm going to read this text to you. Now, if you don't want to look down, look up. It's on the ceiling. But I'm going to start in verse 6. Then we'll get to verse 8. And then I'll pray. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for, the transgress for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is what's on the ceiling. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is God's word. Let me pray. Lord, this morning we... Thank you, God, for your grace and provision in bringing us into this beautiful place of worship this summer. I pray a blessing over our gatherings here, God, that as we gather, you'd be very near, that this gathering this summer in this church would be a thin space where heaven and earth collide and meet. They kiss almost, Lord, where we feel instant access to you, Lord, where the veil is gone and you're there, Lord. Pray that would happen as we gather here this week or this summer. I also pray, God, that you would this morning give us hearts to receive your scriptures, your word, God, that um, hearts would be kind of very moldable and pliable in your hand like wet clay, that the hardened heart would be, um, would be melted in your hand, God, in your presence, that the reservations that we have when we come to church and all the things that we think that the Bible is telling us to do, 
um, all that stuff, God, would be met with a relational God. And God, that we would enter into true relationship with the living God here this morning. So go before us, teach us, lead us, turn us, Lord, into people. I know that we, um, a lot of us in here, that we as the church, there's a lot of stuff in this room, in our hearts that you don't want in your church. It's in us, God. Would you purify your bride today? Take that stuff out, God. Give us the right way of seeing things. Help us to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with you. This is our prayer, Lord. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us today. And what we are not, Lord, by your grace, would you make us. And what we have not, would you give us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Micah 6.8. This verse has been called the most extravagant verse in the entire Old Testament. This has been called the greatest verse in the Jewish Bible. It's actually the summary of the law. It's the summary of the whole law. It's the summary of actually the Torah. The New Testament equivalent or the New Testament counterpart to Micah 6.8 would be what Jesus said in Matthew 22. It says an expert in the law tested him. And they're always, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees always tried to, to test Jesus. And one time they tested him with this question. They said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which is the greatest? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the greatest commandment, he said. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said this, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law and the prophets hang here. Micah is saying basically the same thing. All of Torah, all of the law hangs on this. It hangs on to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. Or to love God and to love other people. Micah 6, 8 and Matthew twenty two thirty seven 37 are saying basically the same thing. But what we need this morning is context when we approach Micah 6, 8. Without context, I don't think the verse that hangs above us, that sits above us, packs the right kind of punch. It does hang above us, but it can become background noise. It could become scenic almost, but it doesn't become life-changing. If I read to you this verse, and without context, you, you, anyone in here would get it. Like, who doesn't want justice? Especially the, the events that have gone on in our nation over the last year especially. Who doesn't want justice? Who doesn't want mercy? And if, if you used air quotes around God, this could be used anywhere. This, act, this verse can actually be put up in our nation's I mean, in our city's capital, if you just put God in air quotes. Like, do justice, yes. Love mercy, yes. Walk humbly with your, quote, God. Walk humbly with whatever you call God. Walk humbly with that God. Without context, this verse does not make us stop and think. This does not pierce our heart like it's supposed to. So it's the context of this verse. Well, Micah is a prophet to Israel. Prophets spoke to people on behalf of God. So prophets would get... Um, the good ones did. The bad ones didn't do this. But the good prophets heard from God, heard a, a correct message from God, and would deliver it to the people. And God would use them to tell Israel what to say and what to do. So God would use these prophets and say, I want you to say to my people this, and I want my people to do this. And the people were supposed to respond rightly. They were supposed to listen and respond and repent. And Israel had a lot of reform and revival through the prophets. Prophets would come along, and there were sometimes bursts of revival and bursts of reform, but it was oftentimes short-lived. It was oftentimes not widespread. So Micah prophesied to Israel, the people of God, as they were experiencing extreme wealth. So this is, there's a parallel here, and I was, I was studying this. I'm like, oh my gosh, the parallels are uncanny here. So there was a time in Israel where they were, extremely, they were experiencing extreme wealth extreme economic prosperity, but at the same time, moral corruption. And this moral corruption was top-down. From Israel's kings to her prophets to even her priests were corrupt. There was extreme wealth in Israel, but there was also extreme poverty. And this was exacerbated by the injustices on the part of the elite, rich, and the ruling class. And they would push out, they would literally take land from the poor. Now, during this time, the nation looked very religious. The people gave a lot of money and built beautiful temples. Or uh, built, uh, the temple was lavish and beautiful, and they gave all kinds of gifts to the temple. Now, while this was all happening, Israel was also in trouble. This was all going down. Israel was also in trouble. 
there was a, a national threat that, that loomed over the big boom time of prosperity. It wasn't like the San Andreas Fault like we do. That's like looming over our prosperity. Like when it's going to happen? And some people are like, hopefully soon so rent goes down. Like so we're, we're all, that's, it wasn't necessarily that type of thing going on. The threat of a powerful kingdom was actually um, is what, what scared Israel at the time. This powerful kingdom was called Assyria. And, and they had, uh, Assyria had the might and the brawn to level Israel out, to destroy them. Now the strange, thing, the strange thing here is that God was actually using the good prophets like Micah and Isaiah and Hosea, the good prophets, to tell Israel, if you do not repent, if you do not turn to me and live, then I will actually, God was saying this, I will actually use Assyria to judge you and, and discipline you. So please repent. And so they're, they're comfortable, they're prosperous, but this nation looms over them that seeks to destroy them. And so they pray out in desperation. And we all know this. We all know like when something threatens our life or our livelihood, we cry out to some higher power, sometimes God with a prayer of desperation. God or whoever you are, get me out of this thing, please. Remember the very, very first time, I, one of the first times, like I, had a, a, I have a conscious memory of praying, was, um, I, was in, I was in high school, I was young in high school. And I was going, I lived in, I grew up in Bakersfield, California, great town to be from. And, um, and the big, there's two big deals in Bakersfield. There's like um, the mall and the Kern County Fair are like the two things, okay? And so we were going, I was going to the, the fair, and it was the annual fair, and everybody, everybody went to it. And so I went, and I, I wasn't smart uh, at all, um, nor was I saved or moral, so keep that in mind. Um, I was sneaking drugs into the fair, and I'm thinking, where's the most genius place to hide, hide drugs? In your sock, because no one checks there. So I walk into the fair with, like, drugs in my, in my socks, thinking I'm going to sneak in and no one will know. And I look like, um, I grew, had my hair grown out, so it looked like uh, Keanu Reeves in Point Break, just at the very end, his hair's long, and, like, um, that was, like, the thing. And then I had, like, my Nirvana flannel on. And um, I look like someone who just looks like I should be in trouble. So I walked into the fair, and then there's these cops there. And they're like, uh, sir, would you come over here? Random search. I'm like, random? I mean, I, how did you know? And I just knew I was it. I'm going, I'm going to jail. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm busted at, a, at the fairgrounds. I'm not going to fair jail where they have to pay to get you out. I'm going to real jail. I'm going like to actual jail. And so they're, they're searching me off in this slide booth. And I, this is the first time I think I remember having a, like a conscious prayer. And I said, God, if you get me out of this, I didn't have any context. I didn't grow up in church. I'm like, God, if you get me out of this, I will serve you the rest of my life. <laughs> my life is yours if you get me out of this. <laughs> sure enough, I got out. And then I became a pastor. No, that's not <laughs> exactly how it happened. But I did get out. Like, he, I didn't get caught. But I remember, I have no idea why that story came to mind when I was thinking about this. But there is something about, like, that desperation the rest of the story is, by the way, I did get caught like two years later for drugs and then got saved. But I think God held me to the first one. Like, remember you prayed and you didn't hold your end of the bargain. So let's do this again. So um, God's like that. Anyway, so there is the prayer desperation that you're caught with something. I don't know what it is. It's different for every person. Where you, you feel like your life is like, that's the end of my life. My life is ending right here. And then you go, God would, God quote God in air quotes, whatever, God, higher power, save me. This is where Israel was. They, were, they were, had very comfortable lives, and they cried out on this prayer of desperation for God to deliver them. God, and, but they knew. They were, they were speaking to the I am. I am God. The, the God of Israel. They were speaking to the true and living God. Would you save us? And that's the sentiment in verse 6 that we read. It's this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? How do we come before you, God? How will you please deliver us? What do we have to do to get this right? In context, this is the prayer of desperation. But it's also the most important question we all can ask. How do we come before God? That, word, that little phrase, come before, is a, uh, is a word of relationship. How do we come before? See, every religious idea or system has this at its goal. How do we come before this God? And whether it's ascending Buddhism's eightfold path or Islam's five pillars of conduct 
or enlightenment or nirvana or our deepest self which brings freedom, whoever you read or listen to, we all have this lingering question. How do we come before the divine? How do we come before the exalted God? And Micah will answer them. They go, so what do we have to do to come before the God? What do we have to do to get God to listen to us, to deliver us from Assyria, to deliver us from impending doom in our lives? Our lives feel threatened, feel like they're over. Here is a prayer of desperation. What must we do? And Micah will give them the answer. But before we get to the answer, we have to build another layer of context. Before we get to verse 8, which hangs above us, we have to start at verse 1. So if you have the, a Bible, turn to verse 1. Look at this. Verse 1. It says this. Listen to what the Lord says. Listen to what the Lord says. This is the Lord speaking um, to Micah. Listen to what the Lord says. And this is what he says to Micah. Okay, this next sentence is to Micah the prophet. Stand up, Micah. Plead my case, the Lord's case, before the mountains. Let the hills, hills hear what you have to say. So what's happening here is a courtroom scene where God is the plaintiff and he's going to lodge a charge against Israel. And so the plaintiff's messenger is Micah. So God's like, Micah, I need you to stand up and this is now going to turn into a courtroom scene and I am going to call Israel into account. The witnesses are going to be the mountains. I love that. This is so cool. Look at verse 2. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. This is now Micah speaking on behalf of God. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people and, his, and is lodging a charge against Israel. So the witnesses in this case are the mountains. Now this is very, very fascinating. They are the foundations of the earth, Micah says. I call you as witnesses mountains, you foundations of the earth, meaning that the the, the mountains or the earth has been there witnessing God creating, creating humanity, creating Adam from dust, breathing life into him, and how humanity generally went in rebellion. And the mountains witnessed this. The mountains also witnessed God calling a people. Israel, God saving a people. Israel out of slavery. Egypt and making a covenant with them. The mountains have seen it all. The earth's foundations have seen everything that God has done. And God is going, I want you to bear witness, mountains. You've seen everything I've done. Over the, the course of humanity's history, over the course of Israel's history, you've seen everything I've done. I'm calling you into account now. Or I'm calling you to witness. So witness the, the, these facts. And the defendants were Israel. Verse 3. My people, this is God now speaking to Israel um, through Micah. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. How have I brought you up? So these two things here, how have I burdened you and how have I brought you uh, and I brought you up. These are a play on words in Hebrew. It's like saying, how have I pushed you down? I have actually brought you up. You think I've burdened you. And so this is what God's doing. God's calling Israel to account. And this is kind of like all of us too, guys. This is, there are those of us that think that God is a killjoy, a burden. You start to open the scriptures and you start reading the Bible and you're like, this, all this does is tell me what I can't do. This thing is so burdensome. It is not liberating at all. God's word is too heavy. I can't do it. It's impossible. And what God would do, and this is what God did with Israel, he would bring us before him like, how, have I, have I really burdened you? Have I given you a yoke that you can't carry? How, how have I burdened you? How have I pushed you down? I haven't actually, I haven't pushed you down at all. I've actually brought you up. This is what God says to Israel. I brought you out of slavery. You were slaves in Egypt. I was the one who brought you into freedom. They were oppressing you. We would say sin was oppressing us or people were oppressing us. God delivers us. God's saying, I delivered you. I am the one who brought true justice to you. I'm the one who punished, um, I was the one who pun punished the Egyptians for their plight on you. I was the one who did that. I was the one who brought you out. I was the one who had mercy on you. And more than that, I didn't just have mercy on you. I gave you great leaders. Do you guys remember Moses? Yeah, he was mine, my guy. And Aaron, 
So Moses gave you the law and let, led you out. And Aaron was your priest. And Miriam was Israel's first prophetess. Those were my leaders and they led you. Not only did I deliver you and I saved you, but I also gave you great leaders to lead you. I've, I've burdened you? I thought I saved you. I thought I delivered you. And then verse 5. My people, remember what Balak king of Moab plotted and what Balaam son of Beor answered. This is a good one. Now, on Israel's journey to the promised land, they encountered a king who wanted to destroy Israel. They encountered a, a wicked king named Balak. And Balak hired a prophet named Balaam. Balak, Balaam, got it? Balaam was a prophet, and he was a false prophet. He wasn't the Lord's prophet, but God used him still. Balak hired Balaam to go onto a high mountain and call down curses on Israel. So he's like, okay, Balaam, this is what I want you to do. I want you to climb up to this mountain, and Israel's right there, and I want you to yell out curses. And he's like, got it. I'll just do whatever I hear the Lord say when I'm up on the mountain. So, so Balaam climbs the mountain, and Balak's there. He's like, okay, this is going to be awesome. He's going to like rain down fire. And then Balaam gets up there and goes, and he's just about to say curses, and he goes, I bless you. And he blesses Israel. And, and, and Balak is like, dude, I'm paying you. Like, you can't. I said curses, not blessings. He's like, I'm sorry. Like, I opened my mouth and it was like, blessing. So he goes, okay, let's try another mountain. So he goes to another mountain. He's like, okay, now do it now. He goes, blessing. Like, what do you do? Three times this happened. And what God is saying here is this. Every time there was curses against you, I turned them into blessings. Every time something was meant for evil, I turned it out to mean for good. They even wanted to curse you, and I opened their mouth to bless you. I've done that. And then it goes on and it says, remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Their journey from Shittim to Gilgal was when they crossed the Jordan River. They couldn't get through this rushing river during, during springtime. And, or during, the, during, uh, yeah, during springtime. It's because they couldn't get through this rushing river, um, God had to stop the river, and they walked over on dry land. And wh- what God is saying here is my intervention in your life has come in the form of, of uh, salvation and has come in the form of leadership, really good leadership, and divine blessing, and even supernatural intervention. How have I burned you again? What did, what did I do that was so bad again? I've done all these things for you? And he calls them all the righteous acts of the Lord. Meaning they were right for God to act this way because of his steadfast love toward Israel. They're right that I acted this way towards you. Because I love you and my loving kindness was towards you. I kept pursuing you. I kept loving you. I kept redeeming you. Verse 6. Now the replies. And this is them replying. And this could be rhetorical, but I don't necessarily think it is. They're saying, with what shall we come before the Lord then? God, what do you want from us? How do we bow down before the exalted God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Calves a year old are very valuable. Should I give you some of my most valuable cattle? Look at the next verse. Will the Lord be pleased with, a thousand, with thousands of rams? Should I give you more, more, more? Very, very expensive. Thousands of rams? How expensive are, expensive are thousands of rams? Then he says this, with 10,000 rivers of oil. Oil was like valuable very valuable rivers of it like god give us your price what do you need okay here it is and then i'll up it again shall i offer my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul see they thought they can buy god out Uh, we have to remember that it was a time of extreme prosperity in israel everyone has a price god must have a price too yes yes i know that god i know okay we want you to deliver us we know that we haven't done right. Okay, what do you want? How do we buy you out? What is this going to take to make this right? Is it going to take money? Is it going to take a ritual? Is it going to take sacrifice? Is it going to take, what do we have to do? Keep going to church? What do we have to do to make this right? Now to really, really, really understand what's going on here, before we move on to the next verse, there's one more layer of context that you need to get. One more deeper layer. You guys with me still? No. Okay, good. That's fine. The Lord is with me. Um, <laughs> one more layer of context that's very important. The next layer of context is called covenant. Israel was in covenant relationship with God. A covenant is the binding together of your will and your affections. 
A covenant is the binding together of your will and your affections. So there's a legal element of duty in a covenant, but also a commitment to love the other in a covenant. So it's the will, I determine and I'm in legal agreement to do what's right and good towards you, and then I also have this commitment of love towards the other. So there is duty involved and there is love involved. God was in a covenant with Israel. That covenant happened at the base of Mount Sinai. Remember how God was calling the mountains to witness? The reason why the mountains were called to witness is because the mountains were there at the ceremony. Do you guys ever go to a wedding? Typically when I do a wedding, I, at the very end of the wedding, I say, okay, witnesses, um, you are here today not to drink the free wine and eat the free food and dance on someone else's dime. You're here as witnesses to this these vows, meaning if there's ever a time that comes up where someone wants to break these vows, you need to be called in as a witness saying, I was there when they committed their lives to each other. Rich, poor, sickness, health. All the vows there, I was there. What God is doing with the mountains is saying, you were there when we made a vow, right? Were you not witnesses? We made vows to each other. We entered into covenant together. See, the closest things that we have to covenant is marriage. And in Exodus 24, Israel married God. And Israel read the terms of the, co- read the, terms of the covenant and all of Israel said, I do. I do. And then Moses took blood and he actually sprinkled it over everyone to symbolize it's a blood covenant until death do us part. Marriage is a covenant and not a contract. That's a huge difference. There is marital, marriage, marital language used by the prophets in the Jewish Bible in the Old Testament when it talks about Israel's relationship with God. If you get to the New Testament, there is marital language used in the church's relationship to God in Ephesians 5 and Revelation 21. We actually are now part of what's called a new covenant in Christ. That means we are brought into a commitment, a commitment of binding together of our will and our affections to God today. We are married to God Now, how does this change things? How does this add a deeper layer of context to Micah 6? This courtroom scene is not a general courtroom. This courtroom scene is like like marriage court. There's such a thing. I don't know if there is. You can tell me afterwards. I'll tell you now. This is like marriage court. And the people of God are, 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 are saying, what do we have to do to make this right in marriage court? What do we have to do to make this right? Almost like very cold heartedly. And God was saying, what did, I, what did I do to you? How have I burdened you? Has it been that bad? Haven't I given you good leadership and steadfast love and mercy? And haven't I acted justly on your behalf? Haven't I been the source of blessing in your life? And ha- even, even at times supernaturally intervened for you? Haven't I done that for you? And the people were like, what do you want? Do you want half the house? Do you want the whole house? Do you want the estate? Do you want the children? Do you want to sacrifice the kids? What do you need? How do we make this right? See, the most insulting part of this whole scene is that Micah's generation transformed the covenant into a contract. It's no longer about relationship. Listen, what do do we need to do to make this right? Checkbook's out. They ask God, what do you need? Rivers of oil? My son? What? Until you understand that, you won't be under, you won't, you're not ready to understand verse 8. This is a marital contract that breaks the heart of God. And then God says this through Micah. He has shown you what is good. So, again, back at marriage court, the marriage courtroom scene. And God is like, have I, has it been really that bad to be with me, to be in covenant with me? Has it been that bad? And they're like, what do, you, what do you want? Just tell us what you want. And God's like, you know, you know. You know what's good. You know what is required of you. You might be reading this go, when? When did they, when did they know? What, this is what God is saying. We were both there at the wedding day. We, were, we both made vows. 
We both made commitments. I committed to loving you and doing what's right towards you, steadfast love and justice towards you. That's what I committed to. You committed to loving me and following in my ways. You were there. Mountains, can I get a witness? You were there. You made vows. We're in this together. We're bound together. This is what God is saying. Will and affections to bring about blessing and righteousness and justice to this world. You said you were committed to me and you said you were committed to the vows. So Israel, you know what I want from you? Renew your vows. Renew your vow to me. This is what God desired. You know what is good and you know what is required of you. God is calling them back to covenant faithfulness. God is saying, let's go back to our wedding day and renew our vows. And what are those? What are those? Well, they're they're summed up here. Here are the vows. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is will and affection. This is will. I will to act how you act, God. And I will to love what you love. I will act justly because you are just. And the way that I act justly, I'm bringing your justice into the world. And I will love mercy because you are merciful, God. And me loving mercy is the way that your mercy is spread out into this world. Yes, we are covenant partners together. We will do this. This is what God wants. And he wants affection. I will walk humbly with you. You notice walk is a very relational word. When you're walking with someone, it's relational. Have you ever walked down the street and you're, you're, you start to set the same pace as someone next to you that you don't know? And how awkward that is? You're walking and you're like, okay, some, one of us has to speed or slow down because now it looks like we're together and I don't know you, but I kind of want to get to know you. So you, your call. I mean, it's, it's a relational thing. Like when you walk with someone, it's relational. Walking humbly with God means that you're entering into a relationship with God. This is the nature of a covenant. It is not the new covenant that is enacted through Christ is a life of relational. This is the whole Life with God series that we just finished. It is relational oneness with God brought into the very life of God and committing to the things of God, saying yes to these vows one to another. Like Jesus said in John 15, this is a new command I give you. This is like what I'm bringing you into, into the covenant. Love one another. As I have loved you, love each other. We have to do this. There's like no other way around it. This is what you committed to. If you committed to following Christ, you didn't just like sign up for like, I don't go to hell policy. That's not a policy. That is not a thing. It's I am now covenanting with God to be a part of God's life, to be a part of God's new covenant, which is I'm in relationship with God and I'm going to live out the implications of that life with God with the world. Micah puts it beautifully by saying we will love, we will do justice. Not we will talk about justice, we will do justice. The Hebrew word here is mishpat, used over 200 times in the Old Testament. And it's, always, it's almost always connected to widows, orphans, immigrants, or the poor. The, helping the most vulnerable classes in our society. Whenever God told them to do justice, it was connected to doing justice for the most vulnerable people in their society, which were widows and orphans and immigrants and the poor. And to do justice today means that we do the same thing. We enter in and we find the most vulnerable people in our society, in our city, and we enter into doing rightly by them. And there's a negative side to justice and there's a positive side to justice. The negative side to justice is that we stop wrongdoing and we stop wrongdoers. We punish wrongdoers and we punish oppressors. It means to intervene when righteousness is broken, when there is a breakdown in a system that we try to go in and fix it. This will mean taking on um, oppressive structures and systems as well. There are times when we have to work to change the law because problems tend to be systematic. I was just listening to a great um, urban missiologist who was in San Francisco, which I, I missed this lecture he gave in San Francisco. His name is Ray Bakke. And um, I read his writings early on when we moved to San Francisco. Great guy. And he, actually, I don't know if he's great. I haven't met him, but I assume he's a great guy. Um, 
And he said this in his lecture. I thought this needed someone here or a few of you needed to hear this. He shared a story about how he and uh, a couple of friends of his were in housing court challenging slumlords um, in their city. And they watched every single case get thrown out on the side of the slumlord, not the poor, the oppressed. And after case, after case, after case, they couldn't take it anymore. And then one in their group stood up and said, Your Honor, if it pleases the court, may I ask a question? They said, he's, the, the, the judge said, yes, Reverend, what is it? And the, and, and the Reverend said, where is the justice in this courtroom? We've been watching all day, Your Honor, and you have sided with slumlords in every single case. And the story, he told the story, he said, the judge didn't bat an eye. He said right back to him, Reverend, this is not a court of justice. It is a court of law. If you want justice, change the law. At that moment, this group of people decided that's exactly what they have to do. There are some of us that are working with the poor and the oppressed. There are some of us, some of you, that have access that we do not have access to, where you have to steward your positions of power and influence to change the law to help the oppressed. That is the negative side of justice, going after the oppressor. But there's also a positive side to justice, is lifting up the oppressed meaning not to harm the weak or exploit the weak and the voiceless, meaning to care for the vulnerable and don't ignore the vulnerable in our society. Not just to do justice, but to love mercy. Mercy is this Hebrew word hased, which means the steadfast loving kindness, normally typically used of God. God's love is steadfast. His hased is toward us. It's ongoing. This means to love people and love mercy, even though you're getting nothing in return. That God keeps loving his people and he's toward them, even if he has to discipline them because his steadfast love is toward them. I would love our church to be famous for these things. Not as an institution, but we as a church to be famous for doing justice and loving mercy. This is the characteristic of God. This is who God is. God is saying, you know how you, you, you know what to do? You know how to enter back into relationship with me? Do the very things that we said we'd, we would do together. We committed our lives to each other on, on, in Sinai. For the church, for us, we become a part of this. We become a part of like being brought into the very life of God and the program, the project of God, the vocation that God has given us. We're brought back into it. My seminary professor likes to say that Micah 6.8 is salvation. Micah 6.8 is salvation. It's not the way to salvation. It's not how you earn salvation. He likes to say it is salvation. Let me show you how that's true. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. Luke 19, Jesus meets a man named Zacchaeus. This is such a great story. Zacchaeus, verse 1, let me just read to you. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but he was short and he could not see over the crowd. This is just a great, this is lining up to be a great story. You already know it, okay? So you have Zacchaeus, who we know was Jewish. He was a, a chief tax collector, so he was a thief, and he was a traitor because he was taking taxes on behalf of Rome from his Jewish brothers and sisters. So he was a traitor and a thief because he would line his pockets by extorting his brothers and sisters. And he was short. He had the, like, the short man complex, right? So he's at the, you know, like the warrior's parade, and he can't see. So he climbs a tree because he's short. Like remember, I don't know, I'm not tall. I'm not short, but I'm not tall. I know like in pictures, I usually try to squeeze somewhere towards the front because from the back, I can't see anything and they can't see me. I'm just like top of my shiny head is just there, right? If you're short, you know exactly how this goes. So Zacchaeus knows this. He's like, he was, he he was short. So verse four, he ran ahead, smart man, and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see Jesus since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus had reached the spot, he looked up, and everyone can see Zacchaeus. He's in a tree, right? 
he looks up and said to, Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Okay, this is great because everyone around this story would not have liked Zacchaeus. I mean, he, was, he, he, he extorted money from his fellow brothers and sisters. Um, he was um, short. I mean, all, the, all these things are stacked against him, right? And, and so he's in the tree, and then Jesus is like, Zacchaeus. And everybody's like, oh, God, Jesus is going to get him now. Come down. They're like, oh, he's going to whoop him. And he's like, and I want to have dinner at your house tonight. It's like, what is happening? So they go. They go over to, to Zacchaeus' house. Verse 4, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. This reminds us of Jesus' great vocation, right? His call to seek and save the lost. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, assuming he did, he knows he did, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The reason why this story is so good is that Zacchaeus, knows, he knows the law, the Jewish law. And when he's in the presence of Jesus, he's changed by meeting Christ. Paul, who was called Saul, a persecutor of the church, met Jesus in a similar way. As soon as he had this radical encounter with, the, with Christ, his life changed. The power of God changed him from the inside out. This is what happened with Zacchaeus. He meets Jesus and he's changed and he knows the law, but he goes above the law. Zacchaeus gives back way more than the law requires for a thief to give back. He gives back way more. He's changed by meeting Jesus. What happens when he sees Jesus is that he sees his sins, his own sins, and desires to make things right again. And he says, if I have hurt anyone, if I have done anything, I want to restore it back. A hundred, or uh, I want to restore it back tenfold or whatever that is. I want to give back everything I've taken. And I want to give half of my earnings to the poor. And Jesus says this, and this is kind of what my professor means by sal- this is salvation. He does justice and mercy. And in humility says he will do this. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this home. This is salvation. You might be going, well, what is salvation? Are you saying by giving away he's saved? Is, he, is, he, is it salvation by works because he gave his money away, now he's saved? Is it like he meets Jesus, then he's saved, then he gives his money away? And the answer is yes, all of it. It's all mixed together because a converted heart, a changed heart, like, is, like the heart is repurposed for God. The heart is reclaimed for God. The heart has a heart towards God and go, this is not my stuff. This, I don't own this anymore. And I want to restore. And I want to do justice because that's God's heart. It's almost supernatural. It's almost intuitive, the changed heart. And this is what happens with Zacchaeus. And then Jesus calls him a true son of Abraham. Abraham was, a, was the father of faith. And what he was saying was, this, he now is a true child of faith. And faith takes takes risk. It takes risk to have Jesus into your home. It takes risk to tell everyone, I'm giving away half of what I have to the poor. And it takes risk to go, if and I've robbed anyone, I'm going to make it right again. That takes risk. This man is a child of faith. See, God desires that we live into our salvation in a way that it changes the way that we live. If our lives are not different because we met Christ, maybe we haven't met Christ. Maybe we haven't truly met Jesus. And I don't say that like just to cause some sort of reaction. Like, am I really saved right now? That's not what this is about. When you meet Christ, your life changes. When you meet Christ, you, your life aligns with the kingdom of God and its purposes. It aligns with the heart of God in justice. It aligns with the heart of God in mercy. It's humble as it approaches life and as it approaches God and our walk with God. This is the life that we are, this is salvation. This is what we're saved into. And Jesus here goes after Zacchaeus. He goes after him to change him. He goes after him. And this is, this is that seeking, saving nature of God here. 
This is Jesus' true vocation to seek and save the lost, to go after those people who are oppressed, to go after the people that no one likes, to go after the people that are marginalized. In a weird way, Zacchaeus marginalized people and oppressed people, but in another way, he was marginalized as well. He was not liked in his society, and Jesus goes after him, and he wants to bring salvation to his home, and he wants right order to be made in his home. And this is what God calls us into. And we cannot, we cannot be church. This church, please, let's not make this church a place where you come and get spiritual goods and services. Please. Don't let this be a church where you come in like, yeah, I get my, my weekly shot of like spiritual adrenaline and we have this really cool time responding to God and then that's it. As we respond to God, may our hearts be open to God. How are you changing me? And how do you want me to be a part of change? How do you want me to be a part of your kingdom program in San Francisco where it's not necessarily popular, where it's not embraced fully, but I'll keep doing it because it's steadfast love. I will love my neighbor and I will love the city the way that you love me, God. And I will enter into right covenant with you. Let's pray. Church, I told you that at the very beginning of service that we would enter into a liturgy that uh, churches all over the nation are entering into. And I want to do that now. In a moment of reflection, I think that we had planned on teaching on this verse and with the events that happened this last week, I think it's very fitting. I think it's fitting because our, I, I believe that God wants to call our church to action. This last week, nine African-American brothers and sisters in Christ were murdered when a man who wanted to start a race war with hate in his heart opened fire and killed people at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston. The church's history uh, a lot of people have been calling it ironic because the AME is the oldest denomination established by, back, by back black people in the United States. Its origins came out of discrimination against black Christians. This church started out of discrimination and segregation and now is one of the oldest black churches in the nation. And that's where this happened. And it grieves us because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it grieves us because we in our nation have this racial hatred so steeped into our hearts that sometimes we can't even see it. And it's the very thing that Jesus came to destroy. It's one of the first implications of the gospel in the early church. That because of the gospel, the dividing wall of separation is torn down. And there is no longer Jew, Greek, slave free. There is no more of those lines drawn. In Christ we are one. And it's so maddening and sad to see in our nation that the world looks at as a Christian nation, which, gosh, sometimes I don't even know what that means. This is happening. In the church, we need to call it out and we say it's wrong and it's wicked and demonic and racist and do everything in our power in our lives and in our lifetime to change it. So would you stand with me as we do our call to respond? I will read, and I believe what you read says all. Or is in bold. Let me read. We stand before you today, O Lord, hearts broken, eyes weeping, heads spinning. Our brothers and sisters have died. They gathered and prayed and then were no more. The prayer-soaked walls of the church are splattered with blood. The enemy at the table turned on them in violence while they were turning to you in prayer. We stand with our sisters. We stand with our brothers. We stand with their families. We stand to bear their burden 
in Jesus' name. We cry out to you, O Lord, our hearts breaking, eyes weeping, heads spinning. The violence in our street has come into your house. The hatred in our cities has crept into your sanctuary. The brokenness in our lives has broken into your temple. The dividing wall of hostility has crushed our brothers and sisters. We cry to you, may your kingdom come. May, we, may, may it be on earth as it is in heaven. We pray to you today, O oh Lord, our eyes breaking, our eyes weeping, souls stirring. We pray for our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We pray to the God of all comfort to comfort our brothers and sisters in their mourning. We pray that you would bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. We pray that you would give them the oil of joy instead of mourning. We pray that you would give them a garment of praise in place of a spirit of despair. We declare together, O Lord, with hearts breaking, eyes weeping, and souls stirring, we will continue to stand and cry and weep with our brothers and sisters. We will continue to make a place of peace for even the enemies at our table. We will continue to open our doors and our hearts to those who enter them. We will continue to seek, for, to seek forgiveness as we have been forgiven. We will continue to love in Jesus' name because you taught us that love conquers all. God, thank you for your nearness in times of brokenheartedness. Thank you that you are a God who hears and a God who acts. And Lord, we do with heavy, very, very, very heavy hearts. Mourn for our brothers and sisters. We pray your kingdom come soon, Lord. We cry, Maranatha, make all things new, Lord, soon, God. Until then, would you give us courage and strength would you fill our hearts with your supernatural transformative power to be a part of your kingdom breaking in to the here and now? Would you break off the demonic strand of racism that permeates our nation? Would you do it in our hearts? And will we be about justice, Lord? This church would join with other churches to be about justice and mercy and humility, Lord. And as we respond to you in communion and in worship and in praise, God, I ask, God, that you would hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.